back to Getting to the Top, where I interview transformational leaders about their leadership journey. And today, I have the honor of having with me Dr. Joy St. John. She became the Barbados, the first Barbadian Chief Medical Officer of Barbados in 2005. She also represented Barbados on the Executive Board of the WHO and became the first Caribbean person to chair the Executive Board from 2012 to 2013. Dr. St. John also became the Assistant Director General at the WHO headquarters, where she held the portfolio of climate and other determinants of health and successfully completed the first phase of Climate Change and Health SIDS initiative. In July of 2019, Dr. St. Joy became the Executive Director of the Caribbean Public Health Agency, or CARFA, and we all know what happened in 2020. CARFA led the CARICOM Regional Public Health response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And Dr. St. John's leadership has seen her have over 400 speaking engagements about COVID-19. And if you read the international press, as well as the regional press, the Caribbean comparatively did very well on our management and containment of COVID. And it's something that we ought to be very, very proud of. She engaged with multiple sectors and health leaders and heads of government in CARICOM and around the world. She's also the co-chair of the Caribbean Climate Smart Accelerator. Welcome, Dr. St. Joy. Is there anything else that you want to add to that incredible resume? I don't think so, except to say it's so nice to be talking to you, Raquel. We don't we don't talk as often as people would think. And so it's nice to have a conversation instead of a discussion during a business meeting. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the things that I think um, when people see you, as, you know, with the WHO, a global organization, uh, leading CARFA, a regional institution, they they probably think, how did how did someone like you get started and get on that path? Did you have unusually, you know, aggressive parents? Did they, you know, what did you first want to be? At six years old, I decided I wanted to be a doctor. And at age 26, I got into medical school. I was determined to be a doctor, although I wasn't a maths and science whiz. I was, and I remain, much more fluent with languages and the arts. But I just knew that I wanted to be a doctor, so I was determined so the first thing about me is that I was determined to get that opportunity. I applied eight times to medical school before I got in. In fact, I understand that lecturers used to talk about me, the person who applied so often to encourage people to stick with it during the, the intense period of the uh, undergraduate medicine course. Having got into medical school, I realized that I completely loved interacting with people. And at first I was thinking about pediatrics, but once I came to Barbados and started um, doing the section of the course that involved um, an elective, I went into the polyclinics and I absolutely fell in love. So I thought, this is where it is for me. Um, 
community medicine. And eventually, after graduating in 1991, in 1994, I started in the public health system full-time. Before that, I had done various stints and so on. But I started full-time. And I literally worked my way up the system of public health. And in the Ministry of Health in Barbados, you cannot get into the ministry unless you have public health grounding, not just the practice of public health in the community clinics that we call the polyclinics, but also the masters of public health. And once I got into the ministry, although I did love the administration of the polyclinic system, I found out that I really love this thing about formulating policy and program development. So soon after um, finishing a time in the polyclinic system, I started to do the Masters of Public Health. And so I graduated as a doctor in 1991 and I am the class of 1996 for the Masters of Public Health. After that, my experience with going global would have started when Barbados got onto the executive board of World Health Organization. And it was a position that the Minister of Health at the time, Donville Innes, um, was able to secure, but he sent me to the meetings because they're highly technical meetings. Um, the executive board is one of the governing bodies of WHO, and so you need to understand um, the workings of public health, first of all, but then the, the global discussions about this. So after that, that was... 2012 to 2013, I finished up the time by becoming the the um the chair of the executive board. And in 2014, I started getting my experiences outside of Barbados. Uh, the director general at the time, Dr. Margaret Chan, asked me to be the support to the co-facilitators of the UN General Assembly review of the high-level meeting on NCDs, so I went to New York and did that stint for some months. And then in 2015, um, Dr. James Hospitalis, who was the executive director of CARF at the time, asked me to come to be the director of surveillance disease prevention and control. So I did that on secondment for about a year. And then, um, that was 2015, 2016. And then in 2017, Dr. Tedros, the new director general of WHO at the time, put me in his first cabinet. So that lasted for just under two years. And then I came over to CARFA. CARFA is the best job I've ever had. Really? What do you like about it? Well, some may say it's because I am... Um, person in control <laughs> which was the first time that that I'd had that position 
But the real thing is that I'm a Caribbean person heading a Caribbean organization, helping my Caribbean people to navigate the regional and national difficulties of conducting public health affairs of their countries. And so it is never a dull moment. The work that we do is work that is relevant. It is work that is um, completely um, what the member states want because I'm very clear on that. We're not about pushing anything down anybody's throat. We do what the member states want and need. And then, of course, there was a pandemic. And I know about pandemics. So here I was able to practice my craft and really help people. So that's why I say it's the, it's the best job I've ever had. It's relevant. People um, like what we do. We see the impact. In public health, that's a gift because usually you have to toil all day and catch nothing before mm -hmm. you see anything. But I've been able to help our 26 member states. So it's wonderful. And then we have an incredible range of work streams because we came about as the amalgamation of five regional health institutions. So we do environmental health, we do research, we do the usual surveillance that you would think about with, with um, Centers for Disease Control. We have unusual um, programs like the Tourism and Health Program, Field Epidemiology Lab Training. We have three accredited labs, Medical Microbiology, Environmental Health, and also Medicines Quality Control. We do regulation of medicines. It's, it's amazing the number of things that we help with. And I'm also very lucky to have excellent staff who know the region and know how the, the ministries work so we can get the work done. What's the most surprising thing about your job that people wouldn't expect? The fact that we are very strong in the virtual space. Mm -hmm. I knew about Zoom before COVID, because we only have three physical locations, headquarters Trinidad, St. Lucia, and Jamaica, but we have 26 member states. So unless we knew how to deal with things virtually, we couldn't get the job done. So the fact that CARFA has a, a virtual presence that is strong, that is secure, we've purchased at great price artificial intelligence to protect us from the numerous hacking attempts, mainly during the COVID period. Um, those strange people out there wanted to get our member states information. So we have a really strong and secure virtual presence. I think that would surprise some people. I agree, you know, but but was it, you know, I remember, I remember you um, coming on board and then it was almost as though you didn't have a moment to catch your breath before COVID hit. Were you at all, I mean, I appreciate, you know what, you know that you know this, you know, you know pandemics, and here's a chance to put all that you know to, to great use in protecting the people that you care about. But was there a moment where you felt daunted by this challenge, all of these diverse 
member states and being the voice that would lead all of them and to help all of them prepare and respond cohesively to this to this enormous challenge that many of us, well, all of us had not seen in our lifetimes. Every day. <laughs> Every day it was, is this for real? Will this never end? Will we be able to meet these multiple deadlines? Because when it became clear to other people that if there was a problem, they could ask CARFA and we would come up with an answer, we just started getting flooded with requests. And it wasn't just regional. Those, those speaking engagements were mainly from outside of the region. People wanting um, me to speak on different aspects of, of the pandemic, um, all kinds of roundtables, all kinds of opportunities. So every day it was a rush. Sometimes I would have four and five um, virtual meetings all around the world in one day. So every day it was like, is this for real? And of course, then on top of all of that, we had the volcanic eruption. And I had a good dose of volcanic dust in, inhaled and mm. I got really bad um, asthma, awful asthma as a result. So there, was, there were all of these permutations and combinations. But, you know, you, you just keep going. You just keep doing what has to be done. I've never been a person that hard work daunted me. And I also am blessed by God by having had a huge range of experiences. So, so there was hardly anything thrown at me that I hadn't seen some variation on before and could deal with but it was exhausting it was draining it was um, difficult to do that and maintain a family life there were some days that because part of the time I came to Barbados and I stayed in Barbados there's a long story about that but anyhow um, sometimes I would wake up come downstairs, start working. And my daughter would come to me and say, you had breakfast? Give me food. You had lunch? Give me food. Mm -hmm. And I just kept working till late in the night. So I have been also blessed with family that understood. Um, but it was really super exciting too. I mean... Sometimes we would get a call. I remember, <laughs> I remember when the volcano erupted, we got a call. Dr. Indar got the, the call first, that's my director. And they said to her, we want evacuation plans that we can use during COVID. And she called me and we just, on the phone, well, I think this is what we should do. And then we'll need to do this. And we just went like that through the whole process, wrote it up sent it in the same day mm. so you so developed that, an evacuation plan for a volcano on the fly in real time because that's what was needed exactly so that is hugely intellectually stimulating especially for somebody like me who eats sleeps drinks public health mm -hmm. so it was 
it was a real high. But, you know, something like that is, is difficult to sustain. But thank goodness we, we got through it. So what inspired you to want to become a doctor at six? Like, what was it? Was it uh, a trip to the doctor? Was it, what was it? It was a TV show. I think it was Marcus Welby, MD. <laughs> and this this man was so caring and he was helping so many people and you could see the impact of his intervention. And I thought, I would love to be like that. How do people... It was a TV show. <laughs> and what did, what did your parents think? And did you have any siblings? What did they think? Well, my father was a university lecturer in Spanish. And he tried okay. to discourage me from doing that because he knew that I was really poor at maths and science. My mother just supported me. And my brother, who had the science brain, he's a, a civil engineer. He was just supporting me. In fact, when I finally did get into medical school, he was the one that got the call from Jamaica. And he was able to tell me the news when I came in that evening. So he said, Joy, sit down. I have something to tell you. And I did not have a clue. It was a complete shock that finally I'd gotten into medical school. So I had support. My father, in the end, was a huge support. When I was doing my first degree at Cave Hill and I was struggling with the science, I would go to him and he would help to calm me down and, you know, mm -hmm. just persevere kind of thing. Um, so my parents realize that they weren't going to change my mind. Hmm. I like the fact that even though you didn't necessarily have an aptitude for sciences, you decided to pursue medicine and you weren't even deterred by your parents. But how did you, how did you make out in medical school, taking these classes, you know, facing that challenge? What was it that, that gave you the perseverance to keep trying? going on the ward and seeing the patients and, and being able to do procedures with them and examine them and talk to them and make them feel better in, in the little way that a medical student could. I just lived for those moments. So first, what you do is a, a set of basic sciences, anatomy, physiology, biochemistry. Oh, God, I survived that. <laughs> but once I got onto the ward, I was in seventh heaven. Mm. I was so happy. So that was that was the thing. There was no job too hard or activity too long for me because interacting with patients was where I got my joy. Yeah. But you know, it's it's so interesting. I mean, I I just this morning I was uh, reading this thing about uh, a U.S. the first soldier who became Miss USA, and she had to win a regional competition first, and she went through I think it was seven competitions before she won, and she just kept going, and you know each year she'd go back again, and it wasn't even sort of. It wasn't something that she was necessarily passionate about at the start, but this woman sort of 
found her and said, you know, I think you would you would be an amazing Miss USA. You should win your regional competition. And when she's telling this story about going back again and again and being disappointed and going back again, I said, I would have tapped out at three times. How did you go through eight rounds of applying to medical school and just knowing that this is my path and I will not be deterred from it? I could not see myself doing anything else. My father tried to encourage me to be a journalist. <laughs> and I got my first degree and I started to teach. Well, teaching was, teaching is hard. No, it was hard then. So all of those things made me think, no, I am not settling. Yeah, This is my dream. I must achieve it. Now, mind you, perhaps it was that I was to do the things that, because it's a lot of firsts. There have mm -hmm. been hundreds of thousands of doctors around the world, but I did so many firsts. Yes, mainly to do with the Caribbean, but still. So there was a path that I had to, to blaze so others could follow me. Uh, I'm the first Barbadian who has been in the ADG level in WHO headquarters. We have um, Sir George Aline, but he headed Powell, which is one of the regional offices and in its own right, the first international public health institution. It's older than WHO. But I was the first Barbadian in in Geneva. So I've done a lot of firsts. So there was obviously a trail that needed to be blazed by a Caribbean woman mm. in public health, in global health. Yeah. So I I guess that I had a job to do, as dictated by my heavenly father. <laughs> but God, Is, go ahead. No, I was just going to say it. I had faith. But I think, you know, and maybe that's why it took you so many tries, right? You it need the universe and, and God needed to know that you would persevere for this for this path that you were on. Because, you know, at the, the WHO, that is that is, you know, the World Health Organization, that is the top of the top of of medicine globally. That's it. You, there's nowhere. There's nowhere to go. There is nowhere to go for yes. there. It's a yeah. specialized organization for health for the UN. Yes, it is true. Yeah. I don't know if if it is um, perseverance. I think that there were elements of my personality and also of my management, my public health mm -hmm. management skills that were being honed, mm -hmm. because all during the time that I. I was in medicine. I'm very hands-on. So I was doing a lot of things, some for the first time. So I have a very broad range of practical experience. Mm. So perhaps I was learning how to persevere and to improve how I would interact with people. And from the start, I was known as someone who could interact with different sectors. Um, 
and I could also be put to do different difficult tasks which involve negotiation with people. So maybe those are some of the skills that I was learning at the time. And how did you feel, you know, as the as the assistant director general of the WHO? Did you feel welcome? You know, a, a lot of a lot of. Uh... I felt underutilized. I have an incredible <laughs> capacity for work. Okay. But I just didn't have as much work as I was accustomed to crunching in the Ministry of Health coming my way. You know, it was it was a one of the best times for work life balance that I've ever had. I was able to explore um, Switzerland and, and some of, of Europe. I was, however, slightly bored. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's just a function, I guess, of the situation that was around me. The staff in my cluster... Um, they liked my Caribbean stuff. Every morning I would come to work because I my office was with them. I was not in an office removed because some, some people operated like that. They were in the administration building. Every morning I would come to work and I would greet them. Hello, how are you? And we would talk. Now that's very Caribbean way. <laughs> You know, there's just us. Yeah. They liked it. They weren't accustomed to that. And other departments also would come and visit and come and talk to me. So the the technical staff were very welcoming. Um and I was given the responsibility of the WHO SIDS initiative. It was a negotiation because the member states had to be convinced that the resources for climate change should be focused on the small island developing states in such a way mm. they were some of them not happy they wanted it to be coming other places yeah but i also knew that the small island developing states needed to be served with of course climate change and health in a way that wasn't happening so Executing that was also a challenge because there was no funding for it. Mm. And so I had to fight for that as well. I can't imagine you fighting because you're so soft-spoken. <laughs> oh, people who fight with a soft voice are usually some of the deadliest people you <laughs> I like it. Is it, yeah. is it because so, you're well-armed? So it, it was a lot of negotiation mm -hmm. and, you know, meetings with people who were not interested in what you were interested in, and then you had to sway them. So there was a lot of that. I, I have done so much negotiating in my time on this earth because as a CMO, you would negotiate all kinds of things. Um, and WHO, I learned how to deal with people who really had no interest. I had done a lot of consensus building. I used to do a chairing, drafting groups when I was um, in the member state. I was able to get people to come together and agree on things. 
So I, I, I had a lot of that experience. Um, so the time at WHO ended and I came to Carafa, where I could see people that I recognize their culture, I mm. eat their food. Mm -hmm. We have uh, many Trinidadians, but we have people from all over the Caribbean, Jamaicans, um, St. Lucians, Barbadians, Guyanese. Um, some, some of what I really enjoy about Carfa is the fact that these are my people. So working at Carfa, like I said, is the best job I've ever had. And it was during this time because of COVID that I also got my fourth University of the West Indies degree, an honorary degree. And I'm completely pleased about that because nice. it came from Cave Hill mm -hmm. and my father was one of the founding members. Oh, so wonderful. I felt so special that Cave Hill honored me in this way last year. And it was in October, my birthday month. So it was, it was a wonderful experience. So degree number four is under my belt because of, of this honor that has been bestowed upon me that came about since returning to my people to help my people. So if you were to say, what are the three most important things that you learned on this journey? You know, it sounds like one of them might be perseverance because... <laughs> <laughs> But what... That comes naturally. <laughs> so what did I learn? Have mm -hmm. faith. Have faith. Your relationship with God or whatever higher being you serve is essential. And you have to trust yourself and believe in yourself. It is a woman's lot in this world to be dismissed mm. even by women unfortunately so you have to learn you have to get a backbone to fight through that and say this is what I think has to happen we need to do this mm -hmm. no matter what anyone says including women well I, and, I yes, just I just to put just to put a finer point on it I I think it's it's societal construct right and so I think sometimes we ask women to somehow buck the trend of society and, and advocate for women, as we all should. But the reality of the situation is that we're all viewing things through a particular lens because this is how things have been. And trying to see past that, and, and I feel like we always ask women to adhere to a higher bar. And even in asking women to see beyond society's construct as much as it's something that we need i also feel like it shouldn't just be the burden of women to unlock the potential of all of us i hear you but unfortunately women aren't empowered and so women although they are usually very capable tend to fall back into comfort zones. We women have to empower our daughters mm -hmm. by the way they see us operate in our homes and 
in our workspaces. We also have to empower our boy children so that they understand that this woman called my mother. I should treat her in a certain way and every other woman. We haven't done that very well in the Caribbean. The yeah. level of household abuse, especially in COVID, was mm. off the charts. Yeah. We have a lot of work to do. Yeah. They say that the measure of a of a society is how it treats its women. The Caribbean has a long, long, long way to go. Okay. However, that being said, it's going to take a circle of women to change the world. Never mind if it's a huge burden. Women can do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So have faith, believe, persevere. Believe in yourself. Mm -hmm. You put persevere there and I told you, <laughs> you have to remember that. I, that. That came naturally. Mm -hmm. The third thing I would say is enjoy the process. I see so many people going through their day and you could see that they're just like, I have to get through this. A whole mm. day has gone past. Wonderful things have happened to them, but they have been in a mindset where they didn't notice them. Yes. You need to enjoy the process. As I age, I realize there's so many things that I've done that I don't remember because I was in a haze of getting through. Yeah. I just had to get through the day. I still have too much in my work day. I still have too little space for myself, but I'm taking more time to enjoy the moment. Mm. Now, this is meeting number, I think, six or seven. On other days, I would have said, oh, God, let me just get through this. I'm taking the time to enjoy your smile. And I'm taking the time to think about the virtual people who will experience this. Yeah, and, and be inspired find, to find words to empower them. So the next hard thing that comes before them, they will say, "I got this. I got this." You understand what I'm saying? I love that, and I think you know to find joy. You know, no pun intended. Find joy in what you do, and to to appreciate the moments. You know, and to be. I don't know if if you're if you're enjoying the moments is grounded in gratitude, but it feels as though you are just appreciating what's happening. You know, you joined the 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 you you became the head of a regional public health institution minutes before a pandemic started, <laughs> and it somehow is your favorite job. I mean, that's either a sign of craziness or <laughs> of no, firm it, grounding it in gratitude. Yeah, maybe it is gratitude because as I told you, this is what I do. This yeah. is what Harfa was made to do. So to have the opportunity to do that and to see it unfold and to know we saved lives, to me, that was a gift. Yeah. I did not see it as a burden, although my God, it was work. <laughs> but I thought this was amazing. 
And you will always have this, that you were there in that time, saving lives. And we got full marks for an exceptional execution. Yes. And, and there I will draw the line and say that the Caribbean governments, the heads of government especially, were brilliant in their mm. conceptualization of how they should interpret my advice. <laughs> no, we could have had a series of heads saying, I don't care what that silly woman is saying. I'm not going to worry about the health imperative. They had enough examples of, of it around the world. Yeah. But our under-resourced um, nations were led by brave men and one woman. Not enough. Well, it was a powerful woman. She was the yes. one who started the trend. And they said, we are going to save our people. Yeah. We're going to do what it takes. We're going to change all kinds of, of processes. We're going to insist that all sectors get on board. We're going to even tell our tourists that this is the way that they must um, operate. Can you imagine that? No. That's amazing. So I draw the line. And then there was the ministerial interpretation by the ministers of health and the other sectoral ministers and the brilliant technical leadership of these chief medical officers. It was amazing. And I cannot forget the CARICOM Community Secretariat. We really showed that CARICOM is value for yeah. money. Wonderful. With that, Dr. Joyce, thank you so much for sharing your experience and, and um, you know, what transformational leadership can accomplish. I think more than anything, I'm leaving this with a sense of Hope, optimism, op, hope, optimism, and joy um, about you know finding the joy in joy in the little things and in the opportunities and the things that um, sometimes feel like part of life's drudgery that instead yes, are, trials. Are, are are trials and gifts. Trials are the opportunity to change things, not just within yourself but around you. So approach trials with excitement at what could be the end result that you were part of changing. I love it. A sense of wonder. All right. So thank you so much for staying with us through the end of this podcast. I look forward to seeing you the next time. And if you're not already subscribed, I hope you do. Please share it with someone who you think can benefit from this inspiration and can benefit from understanding that, listen, it's not about what your aptitude is or whether you get in on the first try or how, being thrust into something that would make most other people shake at their knees. <laughs> you are built for something tremendous and stay the course, believe, believe in yourself, have a higher purpose, have a sense of, of what it is that you need to do and listen to that voice inside you. It's saying something meaningful. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>